Well, if you've been around Living Word for very long, you've probably heard me talk about my love for bacon. Of course, we all know bacon is truly a gift from the Lord, one of his greatest blessings to his people. In confirmation classes, we work our way through the explanation of Luther's small catechism. The catechism, as you might know, is in question and answer format. And one question that we come to is this, what blessings come to you because you are redeemed by Christ. And one of the sort of dad joke comments that I make every time we get to that question is that Martin Luther missed something when he was writing the catechism. He says that the blessings of our redemption are this, quote, that Jesus bought and freed me from the power of sin, death, and Satan, and has made me an heir of eternal life. But of course, there is one thing missing that's really important in that answer, and that's that we are also now free to eat bacon. If you know something of Jewish history, you know what I'm talking about. There was a long list of things that were forbidden for Jews to eat. And among those was pork. But when Christ died, those old covenant regulations were brought to their fulfillment, to their completion to their final end and goal in Christ. And nobody knew this better than the Apostle Peter. In Acts chapter 10, we read the account of Peter going up to a rooftop to pray, and when he's up there praying, he has a vision, and he hears a voice from the Lord. And this voice tells him, and this vision portrays for him, that all animals, all things created by the Lord are now clean for eating. This happens three times because Peter is like us, a little thick-skulled and needed to see it a few times. You're probably familiar with the Jewish kosher rules. In Acts 10, the Lord declares that kosher rules no longer apply, that Peter and other Jewish Christians were now free to eat whatever they wanted to eat. Of course, we know that those ancient commands and regulations were all given for a purpose. They were all pointing forward to the true sacrifice to Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, who would be slain for the sin of the world. And so Peter, armed with this full understanding, goes on to the house of a man named Cornelius. And he has what quite likely would have been his first ever meal shared with Gentile Christians or Sinners, as the Jews like to refer to them. You see, any good Jew wouldn't have risked eating a meal prepared by Gentiles. They would have been afraid that the food would be contaminated by one of the many prohibited things, or that it wouldn't have been prepared according to kosher standards, or just quite simply that it was prepared by sinful hands. But now Peter has heard directly from the Lord, and he knows with certainty that those rules have been brought to their completion in Christ, that he is free in Jesus Christ. And so Peter eats at Cornelius's house uh, on that trip and sees clearly that the gospel has come not only to Jews, but that the gospel, this good news that Christ proclaimed, that Jesus died for all people, is truly for all people. Now, you might be wondering what this story about Peter has to do with a letter that was written by Paul. But I think you'll see that this backstory, this 
history, this understanding that Peter knew full well that all of the Old Testament law and regulations and dietary restrictions had already been fulfilled and that we as Christians who are in Christ are free to eat what we want. This is going to be helpful as we get into our text for today. If you remember last week, we saw the the account of Paul meeting with the saints in Jerusalem, particularly with Peter and some other pillars of the faith. And we witnessed great unity around the gospel, the unity around message and mission that Paul and Peter and the others shared. This week, we see Paul mention another meeting between him and Peter, this time in Antioch. Antioch is in modern-day Syria, near the border of Syria and Turkey. And this meeting and the events that Paul recounts for us are a little bit, actually, intense. We might not get the sense of that as we read it in English and we're disconnected from the context, but John Stott, for example, a respected theologian, said about this passage today, quote, this is, without doubt, one of the most tense and dramatic episodes in the New Testament. And Paul, in his letter to the churches in Galatia, will will use this particular meeting between he and Peter and others as a springboard to make really clear some critical points about the true gospel and about how we are made right and how we stay right with God. From Galatians chapter 2, starting in verse 11. Galatians chapter 2, verses 11 through 21. This is God's word to us. When Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he used to eat with Gentiles. But when they arrived, he began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. The other Jews joined him in his hypocrisy so that by their hypocrisy, even Barnabas was led astray. When I saw that they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas, or Peter, in front of them all, you are a Jew, yet you live like a Gentile and not like a Jew. How is it then that you force Gentiles to follow Jewish customs? We who are Jews by birth are not sinful Gentiles, Know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we, too, have put our faith in Christ Jesus, that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by the works of the law, no one will be justified. But if, in seeking to be justified in Christ, we Jews find ourselves also among the sinners, doesn't that mean that Christ promotes sin? Absolutely not. If I rebuild what I destroyed, then I really would be a lawbreaker. For through the law, I died to the law, so that I might live for God. I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. 
I do not set aside the grace of God. For if righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. Lord, may your words be clear in our minds and powerful in our hearts. And may we find assurance, peace, and joy in the gospel that we hear and receive today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. In our text, we see Peter, the rock, the one around whom Jesus promised to build his church, is living a life of fear. He, as the apostle to the Jews, is afraid of a group that Paul calls the circumcision party. I apologize ahead of time to parents who may have to explain some words to your children today after church. It's in the text. I can't help it. Now, this name was probably not a name that they gave themselves, but instead a name that Paul called them in sort of a pejorative sense uh, as an insult. But it's a name that's accurate. They were teaching that all Christians must hold to, must adhere to, the ceremonial law of the Old Testament, including the command to be circumcised, as well as to, for example, Jewish dietary restrictions. If you remember, the entire Old Testament is built around this clean-unclean, pure-impure dynamic. And the New Testament teaches us that, that those regulations were brought to their fulfillment, their completion in Christ. But those of this party of people from Jerusalem were teaching just the opposite, that all who come to faith in Christ, both Jews and Gentiles, must now submit themselves to the law, to those regulations in the Old Testament. And these people must have had pretty significant influence and authority because Peter was afraid of them. When he traveled up to Antioch, he was living in relationship, living in fellowship with the Gentile believers who had come to believe the gospel. Just as he had welcomed Titus previously when they traveled to Jerusalem. Peter's hanging out, eating, sharing life and fellowship and friendship with these new believers in Antioch. But then somebody else shows up. Paul says in verse 12 that there were some people who came from James. And apparently Peter and the others there know that these men were the type of people who would tattle on them when they got home. That they would tell all the other Jews that Peter was fraternizing with sinners. That he has forsaken the Torah and the Old Testament law. But remember, Peter heard from God himself that he was free. That everything was clean to eat. That he didn't need to live in fear. He didn't need to live as a slave. But, but how does Peter respond to these people who come from Jerusalem. Paul says in verse 12 that he drew back. He separated himself out of fear. And not only that, but we see in verse 13 that others who were there, others who were with him, followed his lead. He's Peter, after all. And Paul recounts for us that even Barnabas, Paul's trusted friend and partner in ministry, found himself torn and ended up distancing himself from Gentile believers out of fear. And Paul calls them what they are. He accuses them of being hypocrites. Now we might look at this and ask if it's really that big of a deal. 
Why did Paul get so worked up about this? Wasn't Peter really just guilty of being a people pleaser? Wasn't he just trying to keep the peace? Wasn't Paul also the one who said, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone? But this is where we see the significance of what's happening here. This is no small matter. This isn't a matter of preference or taste. Peter's actions aren't the well-intentioned actions of a peacemaker. They are actions that put in danger what the reformers would go on to call the first and chief article of the Christian faith. That is the teaching that we are saved, justified, redeemed by faith alone. In the words of our text today, Paul uses the story of this confrontation with Peter to illustrate to the Christians in these churches in Galatia what the true gospel really is and then what it looks like in the life of the person who receives it and believes it. And so it might be helpful, now that we've, we've kind of wrestled through this confrontation between Paul and Peter, it might be helpful to outline the remainder of the passage this way. Paul gives a clarifying of law and gospel He gives a common objection to the true gospel and then a description of the justified person. And so first, let's look at this clarifying of law and gospel. We see this in verses 15 and 16. He says this, We who are Jews by birth and not sinful Gentiles know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we too have put our faith in Christ Jesus that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law because by the works of the law no one will be justified. If what historians tell us is accurate, that this letter is one of the very first that Paul wrote, then we might say that this is certainly one of the first times that we hear from Paul about a a distinction between what he calls the law and the gospel. Now, this shouldn't be surprising, because if you've ever been a parent or a child, which is all of us, you understand this law-gospel dynamic, that people speak sometimes with two different voices, two different words. Parents often have a law voice. Sometimes it includes your full name, right? It will be stern. It will stop you in your tracks. You know that they mean business when they use this voice. They use it to make it clear that what you've done isn't right. There are standards as a family that we are expected to live up to. It's a voice of correction, a voice of guidance, and sometimes a voice of judgment, of punishment. It's a voice that calls you to account. But then there's that other voice. Once that first voice has done its work, has accomplished its task, you hear that other parent voice, that voice of mercy, of grace, of forgiveness, of consolation. The voice of tenderness that doesn't excuse what we did, but it reminds us of who we are. It assures us that we are always their child, always 
loved will always be welcome. It's the voice that makes us realize that we can be honest about what we've done because their love for us is assured, it is secure. And God's word speaks in much the same way. With a voice of law and a voice of gospel. A voice of law which guides and corrects and even condemns. And then that gospel voice which promises that Christ has taken our sin upon himself. That we are loved, forgiven, and made right. Not based upon our merit or our performance, but based upon God's grace received by faith. And we see this dynamic in our text in verse 16. When it says, know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but by faith in Jesus. Paul says we are not made right with God by our works, by checking the boxes of the law. That that is not the purpose of the law. So what does it mean to be justified? Throwing that word around a lot. Here's a, a definition you might find helpful. This is what we teach in Confirmation. Justification is the gracious act of God by which he acquits me or declares me not guilty. A repentant and believing sinner of my sin and guilt credits me with Christ's righteousness and looks upon me in Christ as though I had never sinned. And so when we think about Paul using this word justified, this is what he's speaking of. It's not merely the forgiveness of sins, it's bigger than that. It's being right before God. It's not only having our sin wiped away, but it's Christ's righteousness, all of Christ's good works and perfection imputed, credited to us as if we had never sinned. That is what Paul means when he uses the word justified. In other words, justification is when God says that by faith I am not guilty, but not only that, credits me with Christ's perfection. This is really important because nothing else in Galatians is really going to make any sense if we don't have some sort of a grasp of what Paul means when he uses this word justified. Justification is, we might think of it in terms of a legal transaction, it's legal language. A decision handed down in which we are declared to be right with God. Forgiven of our sin. Credited with the perfection of Jesus as if we had always lived a perfect life. It's a legal decision that God makes. And so Paul says a person is not justified by works of the law. This is so, so important. So trying our hardest to obey the works of the law will never make us right with God. Why? Because that's not the purpose of the law. That's not what the law exists for. That's not why God has spoken those words. But then he answers the question that sort of just hangs out there. He says this, a person is not justified by works of the law, so then how are we justified? By faith in Christ. The law does some really important things. 
The law makes clear and obvious and inescapable our sin. It backs us into a corner. It leaves us with no excuse, no argument before a holy God. And when it has done its work, we will be ready, even desperate, to hear good news. The message that there is grace and forgiveness and righteousness in Christ can be received by faith alone. Paul continues, So we too, speaking of Jews, have put our faith in Christ Jesus, that we may be justified by faith in Christ, and not by the works of the law, because by the works of the law no one will be justified. In other words, both Jews and Gentiles, both of those audiences to which Paul writes, are in the same situation in need of faith in Jesus Christ, so that they may be made right before God. That all human persons are unable to be made right with God through their obedience, that it is by faith alone. And this is his primary accusation against Peter. That by changing his practice, by separating himself, by distancing himself from these Gentile believers, by welcoming them one moment and then pushing them away and bowing down to the Old Testament law, as soon as people from Jerusalem come around, Peter was denying the gospel. Denying that salvation is by faith alone. He was functionally denying what is absolutely central to the Christian faith. Now this might cause confusion for some people, especially when we think about Acts chapter 16. In Acts chapter 16, it's the story of Paul and Timothy setting out on their missionary journey. And Timothy, whose father was a Greek, and so he would have been uncircumcised, Paul has him get circumcised. So why is Paul so adamant in Galatians about not giving in to those who demand the law? Why does he rebuke Peter for giving in to those who who demanded adherence to the food regulations, but then he, he makes Timothy get circumcised? Isn't Paul contradicting himself? But we have to realize that the context was very different. In Acts chapter 16, when Paul is with Timothy... They're setting out on a missionary journey in which they would be preaching the gospel to both Jews and Gentiles. And Acts tells us that everybody had heard about Timothy. We don't know exactly why, but Luke relates that for us, that everybody knew Timothy's story. That he was a Greek, that he was a Gentile, and so he would not have been circumcised. And so Timothy submits to the Jewish law not to check a box, not to be saved, not because there's any true spiritual value in that act on this side of the cross, but for missional reasons. It was done so that Timothy might have credibility among those to whom he was going to be preaching the gospel. He was a missionary removing every obstacle he could between him and his audience. This is exactly like when our missionaries in Africa make the decision to wear a head covering. No 
spiritual value for the Christian, but there's tremendous value in the eyes of those to whom they are hoping to preach the gospel. That's what happens with Timothy and Paul in Acts 16. He was a missionary removing every possible obstacle he could between him and his audience. He was becoming all things to all people so that he might share the hope of Christ with them. That's very different than what happens in the situation in our text today in Galatians. Peter wasn't going back to obeying the Old Testament regulations for missional reasons so that he might win some, but out of fear and cowardice. There were powerful or influential people that Peter wanted to please, and so he changed his practice in order to keep himself out of trouble, in order to stay popular. And in doing so, he was elevating the law as necessary for salvation and denying the gospel that salvation is by faith alone. Paul clarifies for us law, its role, its purpose, its use, and the gospel, that the law cannot save. It can only condemn and accuse and instruct. We are justified by faith alone. The next thing we see is a common objection to the true gospel. We see this in verse 17. Paul says, But if in seeking to be justified in Christ, we Jews find ourselves also among the sinners, Gentiles, doesn't that mean that Christ promotes sin? He answers this sort of rhetorical question, absolutely not. If I rebuild what I destroyed, then I would be a lawbreaker. Paul identifies it and answers a common objection. The argument goes something like this. If Jewish people are no longer bound to these laws and regulations that set them apart from sinners, that made them different from Gentiles, then aren't they going to just be in the same category as sinners? Like everybody else. And so couldn't you say, if that's true, couldn't you say that then Christ is actually promoting sin, that he's an agent of sin? Isn't Jesus then just promoting sinful behavior? Isn't he denying the Old Testament? And Paul's response is absolutely not. And then he goes on to say that it's not refusing to submit to the Old Testament law that makes one a sinner, that, that he would be a sinner if he changed and started following that law again. And this isn't just a Jewish argument. You hear it today. People often add to the gospel, demand Jesus plus something, because they're afraid that people are going to take advantage of God's grace, God's kindness to sinners. This is the older brother in the story of the prodigal son. There are, if you remember the story, essentially three characters in the story. When the wasteful son returns home in shame, both he and the father start rejoicing, partying. The son is rejoicing over the father's grace to him. And the father is rejoicing because his son, who once was dead, is now alive. And the ironic part of the story, and what makes it such a profound and captivating story, is that the only villain in the story is not the wasteful son, but the older brother. 
who was angry at his younger prodigal sinful brother because the father treated him so well, so graciously. He was angry at his father and he was angry at his brother. The brother was taking advantage of the father's kindness and mercy and love. And what's so profound is that Jesus essentially leaves the older brother who had always done the right thing as the villain in the story. Many Christians are so worried about sinners taking advantage of the grace of God that they actually end up denying the gospel by adding all sorts of terms and conditions. The reality of God's grace, the very nature of God's grace itself is that by definition, it is to be taken advantage of. You are only promised eternity with God by taking advantage of his grace. There's no neutral here. You either deserve eternal life, you either deserve God's goodness and love, or you don't. And I hope this isn't news to you, but you don't. None of us do. And so that means that everyone who gets into the kingdom, every single person who gets into the kingdom does so by taking advantage of the grace and mercy of God. But oh, how religious people love to keep others out. To build obstacles, to build walls, to keep sinners where they think sinners belong. They love to sit around and complain about how other people take advantage of God's grace. They love to get their score sheets out and point out all the ways that someone else has a failing grade. I've heard these stories and these complaints so many times, and I've been in this game long enough to realize something, and that's that usually the people who are so vocal about someone else abusing God's grace, usually the older brothers who refuse to go into the party because they can't stop thinking about those who are there who don't belong there, that usually those people are woefully insecure when it comes to their own salvation because they are still clinging to the delusion that they might just be good enough to make God love them. They might be good enough to make God proud of them. If that's you today, if you find yourself continually critical of sinners, particularly when it comes to those that you see as abusing God's grace, if you hear the story of the older brother and you know deep down inside that resonates with you, the message for you today is clear. Stop the silly games. Repent of your self-righteousness and your religiosity and your sense of superiority and get your butt into the party. God loves you. You're only hurting yourself by pointing out others' sins, by drawing lines and building walls and worrying about other people. You're only hurting yourself. Everybody else is in the party. Paul gives us a clarifying of law and gospel, a common objection to the true gospel. And third, we get a description of the justified person. Verse 19 says, For through the law 
I died to the law so that I might live for God. I've been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not set aside the grace of God for if righteousness could be gained through the law, then Christ died for nothing. Paul describes for us the life of a justified person. And think about these three phrases. I want you to hear these words, receive these words, because they're spoken about you who are in Christ. Three critical phrases. I died to the law. I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. And I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Think about these words. Receive these words. If you have faith in Christ today, these words are for you. You died to the law. You're not on the hamster wheel. You're not grasping at straws, trying to figure out how you can somehow make God happy. God will never be more pleased with you ever than he already is if you are in Christ. You have been crucified with Christ. You no longer live, but Christ lives in you. By faith, you have been united together with Christ in his death and in his resurrection. He is yours and you are his. And you live by faith in the Son of God who loved you and gave himself for you. You don't, you don't live by the law, by obligation, by works, by performance, but by faith. Jesus gave himself for you. And to go back again to living by performance and living by the law and by your works is to say, Jesus, that, that was nice of you, but it wasn't quite enough. He would never say that. And the beautiful news is that none of this was ever because of something we did or how good we could behave or perform. It was always only ever by faith. Sin, death, condemnation, hell have been crucified on the cross. This doesn't mean you'll never sin. You're all going to sin today. You're sinning now by thinking about uh, how you really want to go to lunch and how we wish the pastor would shut up. We're all going to sin. Our lives, uh, Luther said that we drag around our sin nature like a ball and chain. We're going to wrestle with sin every day. But it means that in Christ, the sins of right now, the sins of this afternoon and tomorrow and the rest of the week and, and next week and next month, those sins have already been nailed to the cross. You have been crucified with Christ. It's already been handled. You will struggle to believe this good news. We all do. You will sin and Sometimes your neighbor, sometimes the devil himself will throw your sins back in your face. And in those moments, we cling to the words of our text. We believe it because God has said it, remembering that we have already been crucified with Christ. That we have a new identity in Christ. And, and that means that Jesus has fulfilled 
the law perfectly for us. He has condemned sin. He has vanquished death. He has destroyed hell for all who believe. This is our confidence. This is our great hope. Paul ends this section of Galatians this way. In verse 21, he says this, If righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. If you could be made right with God on your own, then Christ died for nothing. Luther reflected on on this particular verse with a question. He asked this question, Do you think that God gave his son and delivered him for us all for the fun of it? Most certainly not, he said. We will always affirm with Paul that either Christ died in vain or else the law cannot justify us. But Christ did not suffer and die in vain. If my salvation was so difficult to accomplish that it necessitated the death of Christ, then all my works, all the righteousness of the law, are good for nothing. How could I buy for a penny what cost a million dollars? The law is a penny's worth when you compare it with Christ. Should I be so stupid as to reject the righteousness of Christ, which cost me nothing, and slave like a fool to achieve the righteousness of the law? Everyone who seeks righteousness without Christ, either by works Merits, satisfactions, afflictions, or by the law, rejects the grace of God and despises the death of Christ. Dear child of God, Jesus didn't die in vain. He died in your place. He died for your sin. And what he has done for you can never be received through the law or through morality or through good works. It is only ever received by faith and so receive. And Don't move beyond. Don't think that you can grow beyond this beautiful gospel message. Jesus has fulfilled the law. He has condemned sin, vanquished death, and destroyed hell for all who believe. May this be the firm confession and message of living word so long as we live. Let's pray. God, we are so grateful for the gospel because we know how great our sin is. We're so grateful that you sent your son to to die for us, to die in our place. And so help us understand, help us see and and realize the foolishness of, of trying to earn what, what we can only ever receive. We thank you for the opportunity that we have today to receive from you. To receive the assurance of our forgiveness and new life in your son Jesus Christ. If there is anyone here who doesn't know of your love, who doesn't have faith in your son, may you move within them to, to find out more to confess their sin, to believe this good news. And for all who do believe today, for all who are trusting in you, may you give deep and abiding assurance and hope and the joy of salvation. That We don't have to, to guess about our eternity because your word so clearly says that we are justified by faith. 
that we are made right with you by faith alone, for which we give you thanks. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.